Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Mark Schulz. Mark is a professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College, is the associate director of the Harvard Study of Human Development, and is the co-author of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. During our conversation, Mark talks about the key insight from the longest study ever done on human flourishing, that good relationships are the most important factor in a thriving life. He also discusses what a good relationship means, how good relationships provide us protection from the vicissitudes of life, the ideal number of friends, Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone, and the epidemic of modern loneliness, and how our culture distracts us from properly prioritizing what actually makes us healthy and happy. I feel that the truth of this book is hiding in plain sight. We all know that great friends and enduring connections are treasures, but it's easy to get distracted and lethargic. I hope this work can be a clarifier for us all and a reminder to be more people-focused, to be a bit more socially generous and a bit more worthy of having terrific people in our lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Schultz. Mark Schultz, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know how busy of a guy you are. Uh, It's a privilege to be able to do this conversation. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Oh, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. Excited to talk with you, Dan. Likewise. I think, you know, I've been burying myself in the book and your research for the last few days, but I know most people who listen to this probably, you know, haven't necessarily definitely had that time to be able to get as familiar with the work. So I thought it might be helpful just to start with um, the basic question of where did this study come from? What's the background genesis story of the book that ended ended up becoming the book that we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Well, the study started in the late 1930s, so it's been going on for 85 years, which is just remarkable. And the study itself is a very unusual study. So 1938 was a particular time in our history. We were in the midst of the Depression in the United States. It was the eve of World War II. And two separate studies began in Boston with a common focus on trying to understand what led to human flourishing. Two very different groups of participants, uh, so 724 participants in all. Two-thirds came from uh, inner-city Boston. These were teenagers, 13- and 14-year-olds that were growing up in the poorest, most disadvantaged parts of Boston, living in tenement housing, uh, very crowded circumstances, most without running water. Almost two-thirds had come from immigrant families. Their parents had come to the United States fleeing poverty or discrimination. So a sample that was really facing real struggles in life, but the focus was on trying to figure out how some of the kids under that circumstance might actually thrive, what factors led to their flourishing. And then across Boston, just outside in Cambridge, was the remaining one-third of the sample. This was a separate study at the start focused on what they thought of as normal development. And what do you do if you're interested in normal people? You go out and you find Harvard men. Yeah, that's what they thought in the 1930s. And they were interested in how they basically made the transition into young adulthood. They were interested in following a group that appeared to be on a track of success and trying to understand again the factors that led to flourishing in that group. Both groups followed very closely, uh, interviews, 
visits to their homes, uh, observations of their interactions with their parents, uh, lots of questionnaires basically every two years throughout the length of the study, medical records, lots of poking and prodding and measuring at the beginning of the study as well, physical measurements. And then uh, every 10 years or so interviews, study was really interested in the lived experience of participants. So the interviews and open-ended questions along with traditional psychological questions, really important uh, along uh, the length of the study. Over time, we included the uh, spouses of the original participants, and now we're studying more than 1,300 of their children. Uh, last 20 years, we've also brought in more modern techniques like brain scans and blood assays to understand what's going on under the skin. Um, and we bring them into the lab and do things like stress them out to see how their bodies respond to stress and how they recover uh, from stress. So that's a study in a nutshell. It's really quite remarkable. I think you also asked how I got involved. I got involved yeah. about 20 years ago. Bob Waldinger and I, Bob is the co-author of The Good Life along with me. Um, basically took over the study from the third director, uh, George Valiant, about 20 years ago, and we've been involved since. Yeah. I think you you mentioned a couple of things there that might be worth highlighting. One is, you know, uh, from my understanding, a part of the inner part of the, the process that was unique was the focus on thriving, not on, you know, negative factors in, in life, but really like trying to figure out what what actually helps people to thrive. And the other is just the intensity and length. My understanding is that it's the longest, I think, longitudinal study ever done of this kind. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, each of those things that you just said are absolutely true. So, um, you know, this idea about focusing on thriving, unusual, particularly unusual when we were experiencing so much challenge as a society during the Depression. Uh, fascism was on the rise. World War mm -hmm. II was about to start. Um, but these folks, two different investigators, sets of investigators, had this idea to focus on human thriving way before the idea of positive psychology was a thing. So really mm -hmm. important it is the longest study that we know of that's really focused on well-being and happiness and follow people this closely across time. Uh, so those are some of the things that make this study very unusual. Uh, we've really gotten to know these 724 families, the original participants, their spouses, and now their children. We have file drawers full of information, correspondence across the, the years, answers to the questions that we ask, notes from the interviews. Um, so these are like big family albums, but carefully curated and collected by scientists across time. So very unusual for any study to last more than five or 10 decades, let alone eight decades. So really feel fortunate to be connected to the study and grateful to these participants who have been so generous with their lives. Totally. And this is a very basic question, but what did you find? <laughs> so... I'm a scientist and, and basic questions and simple answers are, are not sort of what my go-to instinct is. But when Bob and I sat down and said, do we have something to offer? Is there information from the study that is worth trying to share with people beyond just the academic journals that it's been presented in hundreds of times, hundreds of articles from the study? And we did a little bit of work to see whether there was a kind of simple message in some of the data. And lo and behold, we realized that relationships are at the core of our emotional and our physical well-being. So in the book, we say it's relationships that keep us happier and healthier throughout the lifespan. The happier part isn't much of a surprise to most people. It wasn't a big surprise to us. We know that relationships are important for our, our happiness, our joy that we experience 
much of what we are those sort of peak moments in life we often experience in the company of others and often because of those connections but this idea that relationships are so intimately connected to our physical health was the surprise when we started thinking about this 20 years ago uh, we were we were trying to make sure that as a good scientist does to make sure that this was a finding that was happening in other studies it wasn't unique mm -hmm. to people born in boston in the 1910s or 20s and this was, in fact, a finding that a number of other research studies were beginning to find across types of methods. So research with animals, with humans, longitudinal research, experimental research. And now, 20, 30 years later, we're beginning to understand why it is that hmm. our physical health is so connected with our relationship health. Um, so that was the surprising part. And that's the simple take-home message. Relationships <laughs> are really critical. You know, lots of other findings, but this is what we talk about in The Good Life. Um, we also like to uh, important interject. This is a study that also suggests that you want to take care of your body like you're going to have it for a really long time. So smoking is not good for you. Excessive drinking is not good for you. Exercise is good. And getting to that doctor on occasion is really yeah. important, too. And I know you've addressed this in prior interviews that I've come across. And uh, this is another basic question, but I think it's one probably spending a little bit of time on. Yeah, the the emphasis from my reading of of the book and uh, what you know you you have shared in other interviews is really on good relationships, and I'd love to give you a little time to to flesh that out a little bit. What what exactly does that mean? Right. So when we say relationships are important, the first thing I want to say is it's all types of relationships. So mm -hmm. people have a tendency to hear when I say that, oh, it's got to be a intimate relationship, a, a relationship with a partner. And I have been so successful at those kinds of relationships. It's okay. <laughs> relationships are so important that we tend to need to spread the role, the function of relationships across many people. Good quality relationships are the key part. So some of what we're looking for is the ability to trust someone, to depend on them, a sense that they know important uh, parts of ourselves. So that word intimacy is about letting other people know things that are important to us. So we want other people to know us, to understand us. Um, the kinds of supports that we need in life. So we all need support. We face challenges. Um, are really critical functions that relationships serve. So uh, figuring out ways to navigate during a challenge or a major stress or a loss, we often turn to others and relationships turn out to be really important. So the quality of the relationship is critical. In the study, we had a question that we like to highlight as a kind of uh, indication of what's important. And that question was in the middle of the night, if mm -hmm. you're sick or scared, is there someone you can turn to? And some of the participants in the studies listed 10 people, and some couldn't list any, even if they were sleeping with someone by their side, they couldn't depend on that person in that context. So when we say have your back, we're talking about someone who's going to be there when we face life's challenges. Yeah. And I know, I mean, the word that I came across in reading the book, and you alluded to this a little bit uh, before, is is the protective aspect of having these kind of relationships in your life for your physical well-being. And I wonder if you could spend a little bit of time speaking about that, of the the yeah. shield, the kind of protection that these relationships really t seem to give people. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I'm, I've been a researcher of relationships for almost 40 years at this point, and I hadn't stepped back and really thought about all the functions that relationships can serve until Bob and I sat down and started to write about this in the book. So Relationships are places of joy. Joy and happiness helps us recover from challenge, including stress. 
they give us a sense of who we are and our identity. But a particular function they serve is in maintaining our health. And there are a few ways that that relationships do that. Um, One way, which is maybe a little less sexy for folks today, but still really important, is people who are important to us remind us to do healthy things. Mm. So my wife might say, did you make that appointment with the doctor? Mm. And I'd say, no, not yet. Yeah, but I'm going to do it. Right. So that kind of nagging, which I don't experience as nagging for my wife, um, is really helpful. Uh, Friends remind us to exercise. We actually often do that with friends as well. Mm. So the kinds of behavioral things that relationships um, push for, they nudge us towards are also important. But the sexy stuff that scientists are really excited about is trying to understand how relationships get under our skin, literally, and affect our body. And the easiest way to think about it is that when we're stressed out, there's a cascade of things that happen to our body. So stress hormones start to cascade through our bodies and into our brains. Um, A result of that over chronic periods or longer periods of time is that our immune functioning begins to decrease. We become less resistant to bacterial infections and viruses. Uh, We experience higher levels of inflammation and inflammation is intimately tied to many of the diseases of aging. It's something that doctors are working hard to help patients figure out how to reduce inflammation. And we know from a number of studies, and I can give you some examples uh, that I think are helpful in just a second, that good relationships, good quality relationships help reduce inflammation, they help improve our immune functioning, and they generally help us cope with stress. They help us recover from stress quicker, and they protect us to a certain extent from stress to begin with. So that is an emphasis in the book. It's so exciting to think about these mechanisms to really understand how it works. Um, And maybe it would help. Should I give an example, Dan, of one of those studies that that we highlight in the book? So, you know, one really neat study is a study of wound healing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of gross to think about the beginning, but these are um, psychologists and doctors that actually take a small circular wound from people's forearms. So this is a punch biopsy that's done when you're you're doing a skin check for something that's suspicious. uh, And it creates a small circular wound. And then in the study, the wound is followed very carefully every day. There are pictures taken of that wound to see how quickly the wound heals. And in the initial studies, which were done with some people that were caring for folks with dementia, so these were caregivers under high levels of stress in their relationships in particular, um, those wounds took much longer to heal. On average, it was a, long, a week longer for the caregivers of folks with dementia than folks that didn't have that stress in their life. Mm-hmm. Other studies have replicated this in other ways. So if you're in a relationship, a primary relationship that's more satisfying, has less conflict, those wounds will heal more quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of amazing just to step back. Like I still think about the study and it's remarkable to imagine that our wounds literally heal quicker depending on the quality of our relationships and the amount of stress that we experience. So those are examples, vivid ones of how, you know, stress and relationships literally get under our skin, right. And Mm -hmm. affect how it heals. Fascinating. You know, I know this was something I also definitely wanted to bring up and, and get your thoughts on, which is inverting good relationships and talk about bad relationships and how it seems that, you know, to me, it would seem likely that the benefits that you're talking about, even with your healing example, that um, the protection that you get from people that you believe care about you, who you can be yourself with, that another trick of life, you know, a, a wisdom in life is 
avoiding toxic relationships or getting out of bad relationships. And I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on if you feel like that's correct and anything else that you know, comes to mind related to that idea. So, so I think the part that's absolutely correct is that the quality of our relationships affects our physical health. So if you're in relationships that are filled with tension, don't have that element of trust that I described, and which you can't call people when you're facing a real challenge, um, it's, it's not just not helpful, not protective. It can also be corrosive to our health. Mm-hmm. Another way of thinking about this is that for folks that don't know anyone in their life that knows them, that they feel like has their back, that's there for them when they're facing challenges. We call that loneliness in the modern Mm. era. Um, Mm. It's a perception, right, that there's no one out there that really cares about how you're doing. And rates of loneliness are at astronomical levels. Uh, So we're talking about levels anywhere between 25 and 50%, depending on the survey of people in the United States. There are similar levels across other industrialized countries, both in the East and the West. Uh, So there's an epidemic of people feeling loneliness. Mm -hmm. This happens especially to young people. So college students have some of the highest rates of loneliness, which is incredible given their physical proximity to other people like them, pursuing things that are similar to what they're doing. Uh, So it's not about physical proximity. It's about a sense that people just don't know you and aren't out there looking for you. So the absence of those connections high levels in modern society and the risk associated with them for physical health problems and even for premature death is similar to the risk that we associate with smoking daily about a Mm. pack of cigarettes or obesity. So this is a major health problem. Just a few weeks ago, our Surgeon General put out a public health advisory about the crisis and social connections In the UK, I think in 2018, they appointed a minister of loneliness Mm. to try and address this problem. So yes, absolutely negative, tension-filled relationships can have a corrosive effect on on our health. The absence of connection can also have a corrosive effect on our health as well. One thing you said, Dan, I think is really important, um, and we work hard at this in the book. So um, relationships that are depleting or filled with tension are relationships that we don't just want to get rid of necessarily. They may be with people who are important to us. They may be our partner, for example. So, you know, marriage is challenging for many people. And just because you're having arguments or tensions or running into challenges that are difficult to navigate doesn't mean that the answer is to run away or to sever that relationship. There are things that we can all do um, and they require hard work. But they're important if that person is important to your life and that person is also willing to work with you on them. So the only point that I would just clarify from my standpoint is that those relationships, we all have them in our life that are depleting and negative. Um, It's not just about deciding whether we want to have those people in our life or not. We also need to think about how important they are and whether there are things we can do about that relationship as well. I think that's such a good point. And I think that's something I've heard you stress in other interviews that I've heard you give, which is yeah, the and this is a theme I've had I've heard from other people I've spoken to on the podcast of the importance of you know a, a good life also includes struggle and I you know to your point about the necessity of having to work through difficult times in important relationships and the wisdom of probably knowing the difference between you know when it's time to walk away and when it's time to just double down and put a little bit more effort in is there any you know, just rules of thumb or things that to think about related to that specific challenge of wisdom of, you know, 
you've said this before in other interviews that I've listened to as well, that people are constantly evolving and growing. And so if you're married, you're going to see um, a lot of change in people over the years and over the decades. Yeah, I just want to put that to you to, you know, if there's any additional advice that you might have related to you know, what you just had mentioned related to um, needing to persevere, yeah. especially related to the relationship, if it's very important yeah. to you. So, so a, an intimate relationship with a partner, particularly one that you've already invested lots of years in, um, I think really important to step back and to think about, are there things that we can do? Are there things that I can do that I've experienced as a challenge in other relationships? Maybe I have trouble asking for support or giving support at times. So that kind of reflection is really critical as opposed to impulsively deciding it's it, you know, that's it. This is difficult and I want out. Um, I think one of the there, there are two challenges that modern marriages have. I mean, there are many challenges, but two that are kind of connected to cultural messages that we get. One is that marriage is easy and this romantic vision of marriage as being something that you'll find the right person. You'll never have differences. Um, I've been doing this research for a long time. I know the literature really well. And the common experience is that a relationship between two people is challenging because we're different people. And as you hinted at, you know, we change over time. So I'm not the same person I was when I married my wife almost 30 years ago. So she has to contend with the fact that I've changed our, our kind of initial compatibility might be evolving, right? And it continues to evolve over time. So people always have differences. The challenge is figuring out how to navigate them. So that's one cultural myth. And a lot of people advocate that it's helpful to just reduce this sort of romantic, idealized view of romance and relationships so that people have a more realistic idea of what it's like. And they don't feel like it's their fault when the relationship experiences challenges, because it's more common than, than not in most relationships. The second myth, I think, is something that a guy named Eli Finkel, who's a professor at Northwestern, talks about. And this is the all or nothing relationship that mm -hmm. in our modern times, we've grown so dependent on the person that we're intimate with for functions that other relationships used to help with. So we depend on our spouse for almost everything, social organizing, maintaining our health, uh, physical intimacy, uh, new information, information about new things that we haven't heard of, that we put all functions that used to be distributed more broadly, particularly to family and community members on our partner. And that's a lot of expectation and weight on modern relationships. So Eli Finkel, who's a psychologist, argues that that's one of the reasons why uh, relationships are facing these kinds of challenges is that the expectations are too high, that yeah. we're, we're expecting so much out of the person that we sleep with. And it may be better to moderate some of those expectations and think about ways to get those needs met outside of a relationship as well. Yeah. You brought this word up earlier and it was it was definitely one that I wanted to bring up, um, which is loneliness. And I'd heard that about the UK and their appointment and yeah, you know, the growing data that seems to indicate how how bad that this is for for people in general to experience really chronic loneliness. And there's a book I've heard you talk about in uh, in other interviews, and it's it's a bit of a life mission of mine to have him on on the show, Robert Putnam, mm -hmm. who's Bowling Alone, I yep. think came out in the 80s or 90s. and In the 80s, I think, yep. I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak about what he uncovered in that book in general at a high level and, and what seems to be you know an ongoing issue, as I understand it, currently in our modern times. 
Yeah, it's a great question and very much related to this challenge that we're experienced with loneliness. So Putnam was interested in the ways in which people used to um, get stuff from their communities that they grew up in. So, you know, they were intimately engaged in community activities. There were parades. It was just Memorial Day this past weekend. There were parades on Memorial Day that people would come out, even if they didn't know a veteran, even if they didn't know kids that were marching along with those veterans. It was a community event. And there were institutions in that community that kept people engaged and connected with other people. So the title refers to bowling, and he uh, talks a lot about bowling leagues that would bring people together. I remember my parents having their own bowling balls and going to bowling, you know, once a week. That was a way that they engaged with other people. Um, so what he noted, I think, in the 80s. Um, so we're talking about almost more than 40 years ago as the remarkable mm-hmm. thing was a breakdown of this engagement in the community that meant that people were feeling less connected to each other. Mm-hmm. Since that time, we can also see there's uh, less religious engagement. So people are attending uh, formal uh, religious services at a much lower rate than they were in the past. Uh, many churches and synagogues and mosques are feeling challenges in terms of lack of uh, folks showing up uh, you know, to their formal services. Uh, and that was another way that people could see folks from the community, celebrate positive events, share challenges in their life. So in general, we see this sort of breakdown of community. Um, long before Putnam was writing, we were also a highly mobile society. It's only gotten more so. So people often move away from where they grew up, which means that those supports from their family members, from their schoolmates, from the institutions that they know in the community, uh, they've lost when they move to new places. So if we combine that now with some modern changes since Putnam wrote that book, and the changes are really about uh, new ways of communicating via technologies, uh, we're having a real crisis in connecting uh, with other people at the community level and certainly at the relationship level as well. Yeah. And I believe I heard you uh, say this as well. This is a conversation you were having with Michael Shermer about uh, the big five personality traits. And if I remember correctly, you said that there was evidence to support the idea that COVID itself had affected in general Americans' average results to the big five personality tests in a negative direction. Um, would love to give you an opportunity, if that's correct, to speak to that as well. Yeah, no, there's definitely a study. I don't remember the details of the study, but they gave uh, the big five personality traits are five kind of master traits that we think summarize all of the differences between folks in terms of their personality. And what these researchers found, they had administered big five questionnaires before and towards the end of the pandemic is that people had grown more pessimistic, more cynical, less social, um, that there are a variety of changes that were small, but they were noticeable in that study. And what I like about that study is that I think it's consistent with certainly my experience at a university. Mm-hmm. I teach at Bryn Mawr College. I've been there for 26 years. And um, the pandemic was challenging in all sorts of ways. Um, we, I taught in person every semester, except for that spring semester of 2020, when the pandemic mm-hmm. first broke out, I went to remote teaching. Um, but I taught to a classroom of students that were masked, and I was masked as well, which creates a, a kind of separation. We had to go hybrid sometimes when there are outbreaks of uh, COVID, or when students were sick, I had to make available the class material uh, online. And that creates a kind of separation that I think has made us more suspicious about other people, because we're not seeing people's full faces and their expressions, which connect us. 
Um, and it's also made people weary about connection again. So I think we're all trying to figure it out. Um, you know, really important to think about young people and their sort of critical developmental periods that were affected. But uh, all people across all generations, I think, are still getting used to being socially connected in the ways that we were before. We're, we're kind of out of practice. And that's yeah. a, a kind of another theme in the book that, you know, our, our social fitness, as we talk about it, is really a, a, a key thing that we need to think about being more intentional about, just like we are in our physical fitness, that what we learn by following people across eight and a half decades is that relationships wither if we put them on automatic pilot. And this has become even more critical today, again, because of the mobility we have, the breakdown in communities, and these ways that we can maintain some connection online, but it's not quite the same as online connections, um, we really need to be more attentive and intentional about our our social connections to others. Yeah, I love that concept of social fitness, and you know that we think of physical fitness, and everybody basically understands what that means. I'd love to give you a little bit uh, of time to flesh that idea out. When you say social fitness, what comes to mind? What what resonates with that idea? So it's it's a few things. One is, you know, to really it's a metaphor and we're mm -hmm. really trying to encourage people to to be intentional, to really be planful about their connections to others. So um, I had a tendency when I was younger, let's just see how it goes. You know, I won't worry about planning. Um, that's something young people do. And partly it was a luxury or privilege of being young. When I was in college, I was surrounded by lots of people. There was going to be a party somewhere. I didn't <laughs> always have to plan on my social outings. Um, but we all learn, and it's clear from looking at the arc of people's lives, that if we don't attend to relationships, we often grow more distant with those folks. So we can all think back to people that were important to us when we were younger, no matter what our age is, and we just haven't stayed in touch with. Um, it might also be around a particular transition. So having a first child means that people really, their social network shrinks and people don't have as much time for existing relationships as they had. Um, when we retire, we lose the connections that we have at work. So we need to be intentional in thinking about how to make time for those connections. Um, we need to be reflective and think about people who are important to us that we maybe aren't spending as much time with as we'd like to and figure out ways to do that. A regular time is better than a one-off time. Mm -hmm. So my colleague who I wrote this book with, Bob Waldinger, and I got to know each other 30 years ago. And we like to tell people this is true, that we have spoken to each other almost every week of the year, at least for an hour and a half since we started working together 30 years ago. We live distant from each other now. So those are Zoom calls and phone calls, except when we're in the same city. Um, so we've made a commitment and it's usually for us, it's Friday at midday. Um, it's a commitment to be with each other. And that's not only helped with our work, it's helped fuel a friendship that uh, is really important to both of us. Um, it also means being present when we talk to people. So one of the things that makes life more challenging than it was in the older days is that we have phones and screens that are really good at grabbing our attention. So Time use studies suggest on average, Americans are spending about 11 hours a day on screens, which is just incredible. Wow. Um, some of that is for work and people can argue it's really critical to keep up on the news. But a big chunk of that is also people scrolling through social media and scrolling through news feeds in which maybe they don't need to see the same story four different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so 
because these social media feeds are so effective at grabbing our attention, right? Their survival, their their uh, the degree to which they profit. These companies have to be really good at grabbing our attention. We have to be more thoughtful about figuring out ways to sh- to take that attention, that critical resource, and harness it for the critical priority relationships that we have in our lives. So when we're with people that we care about, showering them with our attention, being present and curious, really important as well. So those are two parts of social fitness, figuring out what our social universe looks like. And also when we're with people being present and curious and interested. Mm. You bring this up in interviews and in this book about the the way in which society is constructed if if this thesis is correct if the takeaway is correct that you know this is arguably the most important thing in life or certainly in the top 2 or 3 though i love the word that you brought up related to you know our, our attention which is another way of saying your priorities of how you're spending your most precious resource which is your your time and your focus and your energy if you move the clock back 50 years into the 80s when Putnam started noticing this up until now, and you just touched on a couple things that may have contributed to the the change in the society that we both live in, in terms of the distraction and the new technology. But in your mind, what what's really at, who are the culprits here, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if the, if this is that important to people, it seems like there's a misalignment in what our culture is prioritizing and even what we're being encouraged to go after you know money is another subject that i know you talk about in achievements but i'd love to just give that to you as well and and give you an opportunity to speak to that yeah this is a a big question and an important one and i think there are probably lots of culprits as as you worded (laughs) it um you know one is if we think back about the difference between the 1980s and now, one important difference is that, you know, we were all, we, we compare ourselves to others all the time. So in the old days, we used to talk about, you know, keeping up with our neighbors and mm-hmm. you had to actually go outside your house and look down the block to see whether they had repainted their house and what car they were driving. Today, we don't have to go anywhere. And mm-hmm. people do this continuously. They go online and they look at the lives that are presented in this highly curated way online. And these lives are beautiful. People are showing off these wonderful things that they have and the shiny new cars and other things that they bought. Um, they're showing pictures at the beach and at the best parties. And all of us find ourselves lacking in that circumstance. So there's a kind of vicious social comparison that's fueled by these new technologies. And this is happening all around the world. So, you know, a, a kind of interesting social phenomenon is that, you know, we, we are creatures of comparison. In the old days, many people are growing up in circumstances that they didn't know how much better other people's lives were. And now around the world, we have access to media that tell us how people are living and the things that they have and what we're lacking. Um, So I think that's really important. And along with that, um, the media has gotten more efficient at giving us messages about what they think are important in life. So maybe it's money or achievement or owning certain kinds of things. Hard to compete with the, again, the, the, the kind of pervasive nature 
of the media since we're carrying around that media in our pockets and our phones all of that time. So I think that's part of it. And then I think there's a kind of uncertainty that this younger generation in particular is experiencing. I mean, we've faced uncertainty before, and I want to recognize that the, you know, the folks that we study were born in the 1910s and 20s. They experienced the depression. They turned out to be an incredible world war that most of them mm-hmm. fought in. Uh, so it's not that this generation is the only generation that's faced challenges or uncertainty, right? World War II, there was uncertainty about whether the world would exist. Uh, so, but there are acute concerns about our economic future, about the effect of climate on our very existence that I think this generation is feeling particularly. So when we combine that with this kind of social comparison, with this increase in loneliness and kind of sense that people don't really care about us and have our back, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of what makes life challenging today. Mm -hmm. I was going to say this to the end of the conversation, but it might be a good time to bring it up now. Um, what for yourself, you know, what advice would you give to people who are noticing these trends and are, you know, you, you mentioned one idea that people can do, which is that when you're around people physically, I see this constantly, I'm sure you do, where people are out at dinner together and they're staring at their phones and adding to that 11 hour mark. You were mentioning oh. that on average, people are, are staring at screens for the day. What what can people do, or what advice would you have for others, or your even yourself, for you know pushing back against the um, the general prevailing trends that seem to be you know going on in our society right now? So I think a central part of it, if not the primary part, really needs to be nurturing our connections, right? So I'm going to go back to social fitness, that this idea is so important. It's so easy to neglect. So Mm. young people, again, I work at a university, so I'm very familiar with this. When we're young, of course, we're going to be focused on trying to figure out what we want to do, trying to figure out a path towards success, whatever that means to us. And there's tremendous uncertainty about that compared to folks who are often later in their you know career path and perhaps later in their life. Um, so those are really challenging. But the tendency is that people are gonna are gonna neglect key parts of their life. I'm gonna lean into relationships once I get that promotion, once I earn enough respect at work that people don't question whether I'm good, uh, then I'll have more fun. Um, and the challenge with that is that life ends up passing people by. It moves very quickly. One of the things again about watching people develop across 85 years. It sounds like a long time, but boy, at least at my vantage point at 60, I feel like life is short, that we need Mm -hmm. to prioritize the things that are most important. And that means leaning into those connections with others. They give us all sorts of dividends. It turns out if you want to do well at work, cultivating relationships also has tremendous benefits and dividends as well. Um, So I think that's a key part of it. I think the other part, which again, I for me, it comes from I was always an amateur historian, but when I started working mm-hmm. on this study, this gave me a way to channel some of that, or at least to dig deeper. Um, this generation had a tough, I mean, again, mm-hmm. grew up in the depression, um, faced with the decision about whether to volunteer to serve in the military. 91% served, almost all of them had volunteered. This was an important cause. 
Um, life is challenging today. I have no doubt. And I think young people experience it as unusually challenging, like generationally challenging. But if you look back over the arc of history, I grew up in the midst of the Vietnam War and I was frightened when I was a kid. I remember having conversations with my dad about would I have to serve in the military? Um, you know, the war sounded terrible from the communities that I was a part of, that my parents were a part of. Would I have to, you know, go to war? Uh, so there have been uncertainties and challenges across all generations. And I think the perspective we need to take is that life does um, show us lots of challenges, both at the societal level and at the individual level. It's really about meeting those challenges. So this generation that served in World War II, they describe that experience as the scariest experience of their life. For many, it's the worst experience. But those same people, when they're pushed a little further, say, you know, in an unusual way, it was also the best experience of my life. I did things I never imagined I could do. I made connections with people that literally um, made my life safer, right? They mm. depended on other people in that foxhole in a way that maybe they haven't since the, the war ended. So they told us that they grew from that experience. They learned things about themselves and uh, capacities that they had that they didn't know ahead of time that they had. So part of the trick is, is taking that perspective and recognizing that there certainly are unique challenges that our younger generation finds today and other people that are alive. Um, but all generations have had their challenges. Some things are better than they were 100 years ago. We can talk about those challenges in a way that we certainly wouldn't have talked about as a society 100 years ago. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that, that, that um, many of those people that fought in that war said it was a bit of a paradox, that it was both the best and the worst thing that ever happened yeah. in their life. And you know, I, I know the book is filled with a lot of anecdotes of stories of people that have been a part of this study over many, many years. And you spoke earlier about how that's expanded into their their spouses and now their children. Do any of those stories resonate for you? I'm wondering if, you know, around a Christmas table or a Thanksgiving table, you uh, at dinner share one or two of these stories that just has really stayed with you as an important anecdote or there's a lesson in there that you think is really profound? So first thing I want to say, because that's so important, a study like this only exists because we promise folks in the study anonymity. Mm. So the question becomes, how do we present their stories in a way that protects them? So let me say a little bit about that, and then I'll respond to your question. So in the book, we use made-up names. Um, mm. John Marsden is one of the folks that we talk about. He's the lawyer that has had some challenges in his life. Um, that's a made up name. And we change some details like where they might have grown up or the size of their family that aren't critical to their story so that we can tell their story. We can use their words and we quote them from the information we have in the study. Um, so that's a long way of saying I don't share this at the Thanksgiving <laughs> table because some of that is completely confidential. Not some of it, all of it is completely confidential. I'm also a clinical psychologist. So my family is used to this idea that I've had folks that I've worked with uh, professionally clients that I've had over the years that my family knows nothing about that may be important to me, that that's a, a life of a psychologist. Mm. You get used to doing that. That's just part of what we do. Um, having said that, of course, these stories resonate in all sorts of ways with me and with other people. Um, one of the reasons we wrote the book is that we knew that these stories were compelling and compelling in ways that surprised us. So in the beginning of the book, I tell a story about a student who was interested in working with me on research. And her research question was perfect for the study data that we had from the Harvard study. 
And she said, yeah, but I'm not really interested in working with guys that were born almost a century before me. And I'm South Asian and these guys are mostly white or they came from Europe or maybe parts of the Middle East. Um, I'm not sure their experience really relates to sort of what I'm experiencing today. And I said, well, why don't you read one of these case studies and then we'll talk next week. And before that meeting, and this is a story that's been repeated a lot for both Bob and I, before that next meeting, she says, you know, forget what I said. These experiences are exactly what I'm thinking about when I read about what they were thinking about on the eve of World War II, where they were thinking about their careers and their desire to have a connection with someone, a partner that really cared about them and they experienced love. These are the things that I'm thinking about as well. So part of the the beauty of these stories is they come from a different era Many of these folks have uh, kind of ancestry or grew up in areas that other people haven't grown up in, but their stories are, there are aspects of those stories that are truly universal. And we have folks from the poorest neighborhoods in Boston and from the Harvard sample, some folks that grew up in very wealthy families. Um, so, you know, there are a bunch of stories that I really like. Henry and Rosa are a couple that we start the book with. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a kind of beautiful story late, late in the study in their 80s. We asked all of the participants that were in uh, intimate partnerships um, to talk about the nature of their relationship. And we have a structured way that we do it. So we start off by asking them about their biggest fears in life. And Henry, who lived an incredible life, grew up poor in the West End of Boston. Dad was an alcoholic. Uh, He moved away to Michigan, had a decent life, but a complicated life in Michigan working in the car industry, and then faced a bunch of challenges. He had one kid who developed polio, was quite sick and then died. Another daughter who experienced her own challenges in life got married to a man and later figured out or was more honest to herself that she was gay and shouldn't have gotten married to that man. And that relationship ended and then went on and had a wonderful long term relationship with a woman. Uh, But Henry and Rosa late in life were very much connected to each other. And Henry's greatest fear is that his wife would die before he died. That was Mm -hmm. his biggest fear. What's wonderful about them is their ability to talk about these concerns and worries, to talk about their daughter, Peggy, who got married and then realized that this was not the relationship for her. Throughout the challenges that Henry faced, he kind of leaned in and figured out ways to meet those challenges, even when it wasn't easy to be there for the people he cared about and to, I think, be curious about the experiences of others. So Henry and Rose are adorably cute and very committed to the study um, we start the book with them partly for that reason. They're they're some of our favorites. Yeah, I I remember being the age of of your students um, and being young and being extremely ambitious and being open to sacrificing large chunks of my life for work and for achievement. And I still think there is a place for that in a in a good life. But I'm I'm wondering if after your experience with this book and this research, if during office hours when you know young 18 20 year olds come to you looking for life advice if your you know opinions in general about what really matters has changed and what you might say to people like that now yeah so i think about this a lot i mean i definitely have lived a life that um has included some ambition and <laughs> and you know i've become a professor and i've worked hard 
Um, but I'd like to think um, this might be the hint for me. Uh, my dissertation was partly focused on balance of work and family life, but this was a topic that I was thinking about from an early age, trying to figure out how to balance those two really critical things. Um, some ways I've been lucky, like I, I met my wife in graduate school and, you know, we've had a relationship going on uh, close to 37 years now, I think it is. Um, and, um, you know, it's a very close connection that I've really grown from. And I feel like my wife has helped keep me grounded in relationships, not just with her, but other important people in my life. And certainly the two boys that we've raised that are now adults. Having said that, when I have these conversations, and I have them all the time, one of the things I love about teaching um, is that it does connect me to other people. So that process of mentoring and, and talking to people about their lives, um, I enjoy doing that partly because I learn from that. So I'm eager to listen during those experiences. Mm-hmm. But the wisdom that I will share is that you know people come to me and they say, I don't just advise psychology majors. You know, I love English literature. That's what I want to do for my future. And I say, well, that's great. That kind of enthusiasm and passion, you know, a sense of purpose and excitement, really, really important. Um, but life is not like school. It's not like taking a class. So if it's psychology or physics or English literature that you get excited about, the key thing is thinking about how you're going to do that. So what mm-hmm. does it mean to do English literature? Are you going to be reading books by yourself? Are you going to be writing by yourself? Are you going to be engaged with other people as part of an editorial team or part of a team that you know writes a book? So I wrote a book with a person as opposed to writing a book alone. So thinking not just about the content that gets you excited, but thinking hard about how you actually do it, what your day-to-day life is like is really important. And I often tell the story, I love the story probably too much, but I was interested in neuroscience, really interested in when I went to college. And right before college, I had an opportunity to do some research in that area. I was so excited. I was going to study the visual system of goldfish. And intellectually, it was really interesting, but I learned very quickly that goldfish don't talk much. And I felt really alone that summer. Um, The work was meticulous, and I don't mind that kind of meticulous work. It's partly why I do research. Um, But I didn't get a lot of feedback from the goldfish. And I learned quickly that whatever work I do, a good portion of that day or a significant portion of that day needs to involve interaction with others. For me, now it's teaching or mentoring students, or discussions with colleagues, or even discussions like you and I are having right now. That's an important part of my day that needs to be social. Otherwise, I miss it. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I think that would be difficult for me as well to do that kind of work. And that kind of dovetails into another subject that I wanted to to ask you about, which is obviously the human population, there's a wide spectrum in personality types and preferences and I'd love to give you an opportunity to, to talk about that and what, you know, for people that are either extremely extroverted or extremely introverted, whether there is a correct rough number of friends, close friends, good relationships to really have, how you think about that problem yeah. given the variety of humanity yeah. in general. Yeah, another really good question and a common question that people ask. And I think it's important to recognize we come in a variety of flavors. Some of that has to do with how introverted and extroverted we are. I'm a believer that these aren't sort of rigid boxes. These are kind of fuzzy boxes. So some of us are introverted in some ways and extroverted in others. 
Um, but there's no question that some of us thrive more one-on-one or with two people rather than being at a party or a large social gathering with lots of people in which there's more noise and activity and energy. And that's often thought of as part of that introversion, extroversion uh, dimension. First critical thing to say is that introverts really need connections too. They may just not need to be in a room with lots of people and lots of noise, and they may need more time to recover, to to be alone and to recover after being in that kind of situation. Um, this, This question about how many is ideal for any person is a really hard question to answer. It's probably very personal. It's not just about personality. It's also about circumstances. So there are points in our lifespan where we shrink our social networks. Again, when we have a kid, in some ways we expand them. We are dying to get information and, you know, sympathy from people that are having like experiences, but our old friendship networks, they're harder to keep up when we're Mm. engaged in that kind of intensive activity. Um, So, the circumstances help determine it, our personality help determine it. But the literature says is that, yes, extroverts have larger social networks generally. Um, larger social networks have a small connection to well-being, both uh, emotional well-being and physical well-being. The larger, the stronger the positive benefits are. The biggest benefit, though, is likely to be as we go from zero, remember those lonely folks that have no one, to one or two. Hmm. And after that, I think it may depend a lot on circumstance and personality as to what the benefit may be. But there's also a practical piece, and this goes back to this idea about the all or nothing marriage, Hmm. that relationships can give us so many things. It would be unusual that we can get all we need all the time from one person. If you're that person, you're really lucky if you're able to get that from another person only. Uh, But many of us need multiple things. So there are things that I get from, you know, the person who cleans my office at work. I love to see that person and connect with that person and talk to them. Um, But I wouldn't consider them a central part of my social network. Um, you know, when I meet someone, when I'm traveling, uh, there's a kind of jolt of energy that I get from that kind of connection that can be really important as well, even though I would put myself on the introverted end of the spectrum. So the exact number is probably very personal and it probably depends a lot on circumstances. Um, but good quality to some extent more is better than fewer. Yeah. Mark, I know we're getting close to the end of the conversation. I just want to say how much I loved your book and you know love its message and how I think if people really take it to heart, it, it has a you know an opportunity to really improve our republic. You mentioned that it was Memorial Day yesterday, and I have to think that part of the what has undeniably fueled the uh, tribalism in our culture over the last forty years is is a disconnection among people who disagree with each other and a lack of exposure to others that is very easy to view them as the enemy if they're not in your bowling league or if you don't see them at church or you don't see them in the neighborhood like you would have 50 years ago. And I just I think it's an optimistic um, message that I, I hope people will really give some time to think about. I want to close on you know, what I think is probably for most people the most important relationship. And you just talked about intimate partners and you know uh, marriages uh, during the conversation. And maybe there are two parts to this I'd love to maybe close on getting your thoughts on. One is what what people in your mind should probably be prioritizing when they're looking for, you know, a longer term relationship, if that's something that they might be be interested in and and also how they can become that and be worthy of a of a great partner themselves. And then the second part, which is to me 
something I know you and your co-author, co-author have spoken about, which is that for people who do not enter long-term coupledom, that that is not necessarily a you know a death blow to their ability to have a meaningful and flourishing life. That there seems to be evidence that these people can um, find ways to enrich their social lives that don't necessarily depend on a primary partner in the traditional sense. Maybe we can close on that. Um, and I'd love to give you a little bit of space to speak on those two points. Sure. The, the, the second one is easier in some ways. So you said it well and very clearly that it's not just about having an intimate partner. It's about taking advantage of the connections that we have for others. That's part of life, uh, both the good parts of relationships and the challenging parts. And the people who thrive in research studies after study are the people who are engaged in those connections. So, you know, marriage is tough. Some people aren't into marriage on a kind of ideological basis, or it's not for them. We're redefining the meaning of families and relationships anyway, all the time in our society. So we're talking about all kinds of relationships, and we really mean that. Hmm. Um, the first question is a really interesting question, and and the the way most psychologists start to answer it is that we're not so good at predicting what relationships will work. And I think that that's true. It's really hard for psychologists to figure this out. There's a certain amount of magic and kind of unknown alchemy that makes relationships tick. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's what I would say based on this is based partly on research and based on just being around for a while and being interested in relationships. Um, I think when we're younger, we tend to underestimate how important the kinds of social and emotional dynamics are of relationships. So as I look back, there was a time in my life where I really liked people who were very controlled in their emotions. That was important Mm -hmm. to me to, to be around people like that. They weren't very needy. They didn't ask for a lot. There were clear advantages to that. As I look back at that, I realize I missed out on people who might've been a little less controlled, but would have also brought great joy to my life. I'd like to Mm -hmm. think I've gotten more uh, flexible on that dimension. I have people in my life who may have a range of ways that we handle emotion, but we can reflect on how each of us were raised, the kinds of things that we liked in terms of the emotional challenges and the ways we, we, we responded to emotions in our families, the ways our parents responded or our friends or our family members did. And I think a certain amount of compatibility or tolerance for those kinds of emotional styles are really important. So mm-hmm. My wife is a psychologist too, although we both, we knew each other at the very beginning of graduate school in some ways. So we grew together as psychologists. I didn't come from this background. It was new to me talking about feelings and and problem solving around feelings to the degree that we did. My wife was a comfortable partner to do that journey with both professionally and uh, in our relationship. Um, So we need to find people that were comfortable enough, we feel secure enough and trusting enough that we feel safe with them when it comes to emotions. But we also probably need to push ourselves a little bit. Other people are not going to have the same style that we have. They're going to be more or less emotional. They're going to use different strategies than we do. And I think knowing what makes us feel safe and secure is, and and thinking about that in a reflective way, that's important. It's not just what they do, where they like the sports that you like, or Mm. the same team that you root for, or have exactly the same interests. None of that, I think, in the end turns out to be that important, but this emotional compatibility and trust and safety is really important. Fair enough. I think that's a great place to end. Mark, it was so wonderful to meet you. 
I love the the book itself, and I want to just thank you for all the effort it took. I'm sure to put this together. Um, I really appreciate the time, man. It was wonderful to meet you. My pleasure. And you, you've said a few times that I didn't say thank you to you both for this conversation, but also for your kind words about the book. But pleasure to talk to you today. Really a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 